This is The Guardian. Mit Asana erhalten Sie einen Überblick über alle Details an einem zentralen Ort, damit Sie und Ihr Team sich auf die wirklich wichtigen Arbeiten und Ziele konzentrieren können. Jetzt kostenlos unter asana.com testen. Wir präsentieren die neue Virtuhr, Teil der Diesel Metamorph Kollektion. Konzipiert mit Virtual Reality Technologie, um ein einzigartig organisches und futuristisches Erscheinungsbild zu schaffen. Mit einem Armbanddesign inspiriert von Reptilienwirbeln, einschließlich eines Gehäuses aus schwarzem Edelstahl. Zusätzlich können Sie exklusive NFTs für Ihre Sammlung freischalten, die Ihnen den Zugang zu einer virtuellen Welt ermöglichen. Besuchen Sie de.diesel.com, um die Metamorph-Kollektion zu entdecken. started slowly. I mean, I had symptoms actually in retrospect, probably for many years, because it's not until you feel better and then you look back and think, oh yeah, actually, I was struggling. For Louise Newson, a GP and menopause expert, it wasn't obvious what was happening at first. You know, I had three children, my husband's really busy, I was trying to change my career, but just little things like being so argumentative, being so irritable. But as time went on, Louise started to realise that things just weren't right. But my big concern was my memory. I'm, I honestly just thought, this is awful, I cannot work as a doctor. And that's really scary if you can see your whole career going in front of you. And actually there were times with my husband saying, you are just horrible to live with. And I was thinking, he's horrible to live with. In the end, the answer came from an unexpected place. My daughter, actually, who's well, she's 19 now, but she was 11, I said, Mummy, you're so irritable. I just think you need your period because some of my friends are a bit like you before their period. And then it was the penny dropped. And I was, oh, Sophie, I haven't had a period for months. Of course, I must be perimenopausal. There's a lot of misinformation, missing pieces and conflicting advice out there about the menopause. It can be hard to figure out what's best for you or how best to help a friend, colleague or family member. What frustrates me now is there's all this conversation about the menopause, absolutely wonderful. But actually for me, once I had that diagnosis, what was I going to do? How was I going to get help? So today we're going to hear from Louise about menopause myths and why getting good information is still so difficult. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Dr. Louise Newson, you're a GP, a menopause specialist, and you're the author of the book, The Definitive Guide to the Perimenopause and Menopause. So let's start with what those two terms mean, perimenopause and menopause. So the menopause, if you break down the word menopause, meno is the menstrual cycle, so our periods and pauses stop. To officially be menopausal, you have to be a year since your last period. But also, a lot of people have symptoms before their periods stop. And this is where we use the term perimenopause. Peri just means around the time of. So it's when hormones start to fluctuate and reduce. They don't do it in a nice gradual reduction. They get quite chaotic. 
So a lot of people have high and low levels of estrogen, which means sometimes they might feel wonderful and other times they might feel awful. So if we think in the UK, the average age of the menopause is 51. Many women in their 40s will be perimenopausal. It's really difficult. There isn't a proper test. There isn't a blood test, a hormone test to diagnose the perimenopausal menopause. So that time leading up to your final period, how long can that last? For many people, it can be many years, actually, around a decade for some people before their periods stop. But it's not just about period stopping because a lot of women don't have periods. They might have had a hysterectomy, their womb removed, they might have a marina coil or use contraception. So it's more about our ovaries not functioning in the right way. Often it's because we're older or our ovaries might be damaged. But our ovaries produce hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, And it's those hormones, when we have low levels of them, they're not getting into our bloodstream, they're not going all around our body to other cells. But we have cells that respond to these hormones, every single cell in our body. So in our brains, in our heart, in our lungs, in our bladder, in our muscles, bones, everywhere. So it's really, I think, should be thought of as a hormone deficiency. Okay, so as somebody goes into perimenopause and their hormones are changing and over the course of time decreasing, what kind of symptoms might they experience? It would be lovely if I could just answer that simply, but I can't because we're all different. Our bodies react to hormones very differently. And I've been to many menopause meetings where they show a graph of how symptoms start with hot sweats and flushes, and then people might get some psychological symptoms and then have symptoms such as urinary symptoms or vaginal dryness. But women don't follow graphs. And so there are a lot of women who have quite mild symptoms who might just be a bit of some headaches or some joint pains or just not sleeping very well. But then a lot of women do have more um, severe symptoms, brain fog, fatigue, poor sleep, anxiety, low mood, palpitations can be very common. I spoke to a lady yesterday who was having really bad dry eyes. Um, Hormones can cause all sorts of symptoms. So how does the menopause relate to women's health generally? What do all these hormone changes in women's bodies mean for their future disease burden? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So many people will have heard of inflammation. And as we age, we have more inflammation in our body. But there's lots of inflammatory diseases that occur as well. So obviously, the commonest cause of death in women is cardiovascular disease, which is an inflammatory disease. Other inflammatory diseases are osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, dementia, Parkinson's, a lot of arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. Well, estradiol and testosterone and progesterone actually are very anti-inflammatory, so they help our immune system to work. They can increase the number of immune cells we have. They can genetically reprogram them. They can improve the function of them as well. And so if we don't have those hormones, it's another reason why our immune system doesn't work well. And so we've known for many, many years, actually, the longer a woman is without her hormones, the greater the risk of all these inflammatory conditions. So talk me through HRT, hormone replacement therapy, and how it ties into some of the things that you've been talking about. What exactly is it and how does it work? So it's very basic. I mean, with HRT, all it is is hormone replacement therapy, which again, I don't really like because we're not replacing in the perimenopause, we're just topping up what's missing. And therapy just sounds a bit like It sounds a bit drastic, doesn't it? So it's just hormone support treatment. All we're doing is giving the missing hormones. Right. So in essence, 
HRT is topping up the hormones that are being lost. But what form do those hormones take? So we're very fortunate now that we have these body identical hormones. So if I was looking at the hormones in a bloodstream of somebody who was still having periods, and if you looked in the bloodstream of me who takes body identical hormones, those hormones look exactly the same. So they're the same molecular structure, which means that they fit onto the receptors on the cells beautifully in that sort of key and lock. Um, So they have the same biological effects. So the natural body identical hormones will not have the same risks as the older types of HRT. But there is different ways of giving oestrogen, safest ways through the skin as a patch or gel. There are tablets, but there's a small clot risk with those. Then there is the natural progesterone and then testosterone, we just usually give as a cream or gel. So it's very simplistic medicine. It really is. Um, there's some wonderful papers as, you know, in the 80s, 90s, early 200s before the WHI study that scared everyone away from HRT, talking about how important these hormones are. And it makes sense if you look down on a molecular sort of cellular level, how they work. And yet there is this big fear around HRT. Yeah. Yeah. And... So I think it's time to go full Mythbusters here. And I feel like I could just say to you, take it away, Louise. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and it's so interesting, but it's so sad as well because years ago, so in the sort of... 80s, 90s, people were understanding how great women were feeling on HRT. They were noticing that women were taking HRT, had stronger bones, they had better hearts, um, their brains were working better as well. And so that led people to think, right, if we're giving it to women who are perimenopausal or menopausal, what about older women? And this is where this WHI, the Women's Health Initiative study, came. So, I mean, it's amazing in some ways because it was a billion-dollar study There's nothing in the history of medicine where they've had spent a billion dollars on women's health. As you know, women's research is awful. So the average age of women in this study was 64. So they were older women, often had been over 10 years since their period stopped. And a lot of these women were obese and had had heart disease before. And then they gave them, and this is the important bit really, they gave them a type of HRT we don't give now, and certainly in the UK we don't really. So there was a tablet oestrogen and it was made in a synthetic way from pregnant horses' urine. We, luckily we don't do that anymore. Um, but tablet does have a small risk of clot, like I've said, as well. And then they gave a synthetic progesterone, which is called medroxyprogesterone acetate. Again, there are small risks of a clot with that, but also a small risk of a heart disease. Now, I would never give an older woman with a risk of heart disease that type of HRT. But they did. They were following through. But then they saw there was a bit of a wobble over the breast cancer incidence line in women taking combination HRT, so estrogen and a progesterone. So then they decided to go straight to the papers and the medical journals to say increased risk of breast cancer, everyone should stop taking their HRT. Some of the investigators quite rightly said, please don't do that. We haven't analysed it properly. And as you know, if it's a big study, you've got complicated stats, you really need to go through things properly. And Robert Langer, actually, the, one of the investigators said, this is going to be the biggest travesty to women's health we'll ever have seen. They said, it's too late, it's gone. And obviously, in 2002, we didn't have the sort of same social media that we've got now. So they didn't stop it. And so um, the headlines were, HRT causes cancer, causes breast cancer. What's really sad is that they've analysed the data properly now, of course, and there are many really important messages from it. 
One of them is that there were younger women in the study. And so younger women in the study had benefits. They didn't have this increased risk of heart disease. So that was good. But the other thing is, is that that risk that they found, it was a very small increased risk. And risk is really difficult. If I say to a patient, you've got one in a hundred or one in a thousand or one in 10,000 risk, actually, as a patient, you want to know, is it going to happen to me or not? And it's very hard to conceptualize numbers. Whereas if you look at the increased risk that they said in the worst sort of write-up of the study it's still lower than the risk a woman has if she drinks a couple of glasses of wine or is overweight or doesn't exercise because all those are actually risk factors for breast cancer as well as for heart disease and osteoporosis. So there's quite a few women out there who either have been told or or themselves, they say, well, I'm not taking HRT because of my risk. I don't want to increase my risk of breast cancer. Yet they're drinking more alcohol to numb their symptoms. They're putting on weight because of the metabolic processes, but also because they've got joint and muscle pains, they've got reduced stamina. So we need to spin it on its head a bit and think, what are the risks of not taking HRT? Why are we not thinking about it for disease prevention? And this is one of the frustrations. There's one thing enabling women to feel better. Of course, that's lovely. But the next thing is enabling to reduce the risk of diseases, especially when you're looking at global health. It's really important. And if a woman listening to this now hears what you've said and thinks, brilliant, this mm. sounds great. HRT sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm interested in having it. You know, if they went on the NHS website, they would read that HRT can slightly increase the risk of breast cancer. And that if you've had breast cancer before, you might be advised not to take it. So what should they take from that? And where does the evidence stand today? It's really interesting. And now it's become really political, actually. And I think there is a bit of conspiracy theory against women in general, um, and also against some of my work. But I'm just a messenger. You know, I'm not making any of this up. It's all it's all based on science. Um It's interesting because some of the guidelines will say there's not enough evidence for disease prevention. But then you just look at even the NICE guidance in menopause, which came out in 2015, many years ago now. It still says that HRT can be given to reduce the risk of a fragility fracture. Now, a fragility fracture is due to osteoporosis. I've already said affects one in two women. One in three women will have an osteoporotic fracture over the age of 50, which costs the NHS about £3 billion a year. We know the mortality after an osteoporotic hip fracture is 20%. So one in five women after a hip fracture will die in the first year. That's far worse than any cancer diagnosis. But we also have to think about breast cancer incidence is one in seven, so it's common. But there will be a lot of women, and majority of women who get who have breast cancer will never have taken HRT. And it's the incidence of heart disease is higher than all the cancers that women get put together. So then I think really it's about individualization of choice. If I'm really, really scared about breast cancer, then it's up to me to not take HRT if I think, well, there might be a very small risk. But if I'm more worried about osteoporosis or I want my job back because I want to um, think better and my brain to work better, then actually that's fine. We can't be defined. Not everyone has the same worries. And what we desperately need are more studies. You know, why aren't there big grants? Why isn't this a government-led initiative to allow people to have an evidence-based treatment? It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And now I believe that the take-up of HRT is about 14% in the UK and just 4% in the US. And I can really sense your frustration Mm. with this. Does this all go back to that 
initial yeah. study. Yeah, so before the WHI study um, came out, it was about 30%. So it's still half. We've gone from 10 to 14% over the last sort of five years or so. Um, yeah, there's an HRT shortage. And actually, people are now saying we're over-prescribing. We need to rein people back in. We need to reduce... Um, and that's really frustrating. And I suppose that's what drives me a lot with my work, because as a white middle class educated woman who speaks English, I still couldn't get it from my NHS GP. So what does that say for a lot of other people? And, you know, if I wasn't taking HRT, hand on heart, I would not be working as a doctor and I probably wouldn't be happily married. And I probably wouldn't be doing yoga regularly or, you know, looking after myself. And that's happening a lot all around the world. And I saw a video of you talking to a woman recently who had a really powerful testimonial that ties into this and she was talking about how she ended up on a lot of different medications for mental health issues Mm. instead of getting HRT you know something that probably might have been better addressed by thinking about hormones. Absolutely and I hadn't realised until I opened my clinic that psychological symptoms are so so prevalent you know we know our our hormones work as neurotransmitters they work in our brains and light up our brains they help the glucose metabolism in the brain they help the mitochondria to work you know 98% of women we see in the clinic have psychological symptoms 96% have memory problems I see a lot of women who have had suicidal thoughts but women have these women have a lot of insights they're very different to people who are properly clinically depressed they're very scared about their thoughts they don't want to act on them but they see no way off Um, and so the more that we can sort of join up the dots really and not see it as just an isolated specialty that a few menopause specialists can deal with but allowing others to enable them to to treat and manage, it will make such a difference. And so all the research that's ongoing into the perimenopause and menopause at the moment, are there particular avenues that you find especially exciting at the moment? Mental health is huge. You know, the risk of death from suicide is 100%. So we can talk about the minute details about breast cancer risk. But actually, if someone's in crisis, so so the work we're doing that is really interesting and it's going to make a big difference. We're also doing a lot of work looking at dosing of oestrogen as well. Because when we put it through the skin, the skin's quite a barrier. Obviously, every time I rub my moisturiser on in the morning, I don't want it going in my bloodstream. But when I stick my patch on, I do want it going into my bloodstream. So we're looking at our doses. We're looking at uh, levels. We've also been doing a lot of work for women who've had breast cancer because I've already said one in seven women have breast cancer. All these women will become menopausal. Many of them will have more than one menopause. They might have a menopause due to their cancer treatment and then a natural menopause when they're older. Most of these women are told, no, you can't have HRT. But for some women, they might want to choose to take it for the health benefits we've already talked about. So this is, you know, it's got to be impactful research that we're doing to really um, spill out to others as well. So what would your advice be to women of all ages when it comes to looking ahead and planning for menopause? Yeah, the most important thing, knowledge is power, isn't it? But you want to have that knowledge almost before it happens to you so you can prepare. Those people who are consenting adults can decide what they want to do. But I think once you know about how hormones work, you can then make an educated decision whether you want to take them or not. But it's not just hormones and or nothing. There's this big sort of spat almost sometimes on social media where it's like oh hormone is this the be all and end all you know if I didn't do yoga regularly my brain would go because I'm so busy if I didn't exercise my pelvic floor would go 
regardless of taking HRT, you know, there's no point me having McDonald's three times a day and, and eat badly. That's not going to help my cardiovascular risk and risk of diabetes. So it's everything together. And that's where women need to have information so they can decide what they're going to do. And their journey might change. You know, I'm very interested in longevity, but it's not the age we die. It's the journey to that age. And I think we've got to have grown up conversations with ourselves. You know, the increased risk of diseases is really there. You, you know, increased obesity, increased type 2 diabetes, anything we can do to reduce that risk is really important. It's so interesting hearing you talk about this as a whole body health issue and reframing it away from Mm. it being our reproductive systems. It's been so illuminating. So thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Louise Newson. Before you go, I wanted to let you know that Women's Football Weekly is back. Today, you can hear them getting into the opening fixtures of the Women's Super League season. Search for Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to say a huge congratulations to our sister podcast, Today in Focus, who won gold for Best News and Current Affairs podcast at the British Podcast Awards last week, and to host of pop culture, Shante Joseph. She won the Rising Star Award. So if you haven't heard Pop Culture with Shante Joseph yet, or subscribe to Today in Focus for your daily dose of Guardian journalism, then go and check them out. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by me, Madeline Finlay. It was sound designed by Joel Cox. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday when we're going to be diving into the science behind the 2023 Nobel Prize winners. See you then. This is The Guardian. Fossil, du bist gemacht, um Orte zu erkunden, um auszudrücken, wer du bist. Du wurdest für dies gemacht, egal wohin du als nächstes gehst. Und Fossil wurde gemacht, um direkt bei dir zu sein. Wir stellen die Herbstkollektion vor. Hebe deinen Stil auf ein neues Niveau. Mit unserer zeitlosen klassischen Caraway-Uhr, gemacht, um immer gut auszusehen. Fossil, gemacht für dieses. Besuche fossil.de, um die vollständige Kollektion heute zu erkunden.